Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us in and through your word. Thank you that we don't have to search for mystical voices or sounds, subjective things in this world to seek to know you, but that you've revealed yourself objectively in your word for us to know you so that we may worship you. Father, we, I thank you that we have your word, that you preserved it throughout time, that it is unchanging, and that these truths and promises remain the same. For you are a God who is everlasting. No Lord, forever your word is settled in heaven. We know that the grass withers and the flowers fall off, but your word endures forever. We know that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We know that all scripture is breathed out by you, spoken by you, that it is profitable for teaching us, correcting us, reproving us, and training us in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for your word, and may your spirit use your word to equip us now. Help us to hear from you, from your eternal word, from your sufficient word, and to know more of your incarnate word, the Son of God. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Titled this sermon, All Glory Be to God. All Glory Be to God. Acts is about the spread of the gospel, the establishment of the church, and how the church is involved in God's plan. The local church is important to the plan of God. It's a necessity to the plan of God because it is the church that has been called and commissioned to take the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so Acts records a historical account of how the church began, how the gospel spread despite opposition, despite persecution. God's plan moves forward. His promises continue. God is faithful to work through his faithful people. And as I've studied through Acts so far, we're finishing up Acts chapter 12, about to move into the next major section, Acts chapter 13 to the end, about the apostle Paul and his ministry, primarily to the Gentiles, and the continued spread of the word and the continued spread of the church. Uh, I'm just more aware of the importance of the local church and the plan of God. Not only has it grown my understanding in his word, but it's grown my love for the church. And what that means is it's grown my love for each one of you. Because you are part of the church, Christ's body. And as I see the opposition that the church will surely face, the persecution that we will face, I know that God has placed me amongst this body because it is you, each one of you, brothers and sisters, that will walk alongside me and I alongside you to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to love one another and help press one another on to keep following after Christ because he, it is worth it. And so the blessing of the church is critical to our sanctification. It's critical to our our continued walk with the Lord for our holiness, for our protection, for to know that people are praying for us as well. So I hope you know that the church is important and God has a plan for the church, not just to spread the gospel, but also for our individual lives. And Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And from there, we see God's plan progress 
as the church is established on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The gospel then advances and moves from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 to Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And beginning in Acts chapter 9 through Acts chapter 12, God is sovereignly and providentially orchestrating and preparing the church to take the gospel now to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 13, which we'll look at next week, will be the launch of that primarily Gentile mission through the ministry of the Apostle Paul as the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit continues to be at work through his people. Luke is recording and recounting this to confirm that this is God's plan for his church, that the gospel is to go to all the world and that all believers are united together in Christ. They are one in Christ. God is faithful to keep his promises that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This goes all the way back to the promise given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God has a heart for the nations and he will fulfill his promise to build his church so that all the peoples may praise him. And Luke highlights the church as the essential means and mediator of the power and authority of Christ and the power of his name to save. And so our involvement, our participation in this mission is necessary and critical. It is through the church, the institution, instrument of God, and authority of hope in this world at this time that we see the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And as the church continues to grow and increase, there will be opposition. Expect it. It's a promised reality for believers and for the church of God. There will be opposition. There will be persecution, which will lead to suffering. But suffering for the name of Christ. And we have seen this throughout Acts as well. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after the apostles were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, it says, they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Then it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ They understood their calling and they understood the cost of following Jesus and devoting their lives to him. And in Acts chapter 7, their devotion to Christ led to Stephen's martyrdom. He was one of the seven men chosen to minister to the Hellenistic widows and a messenger of the Lord. And what happened to Stephen? He was stoned to death. And on that day, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then chapter 8, verse 4 says, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Despite opposition, despite suffering, despite a Christian, Stephen, being martyred to death by stoning, the believers were faithful to continue to go about and preach the word of God and spread the gospel. And it was through persecution that the word of God spread to other areas. And it was through persecution that the church grew and was strengthened and was more united together. And last week in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, we saw that some of the believers scattered to a place called Antioch and began not only preaching the Lord Jesus to Jews, but also to the Greeks. Verse 20 says that. 
And in verse 21 in chapter 11, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. A Gentile church began in Antioch, and there the disciples were first called Christians because of their devotion to Christ and their continued faithful proclamation of the gospel despite the persecution that scattered them to a place called Antioch. The, the message of Christ as the only Lord and Savior to this the city was Antioch was heathen, it was immoral, it was pagan, it was idol worshiping. And so this message of Christ, the good news of Jesus being the only Lord and Savior, the God-man, was ludicrous. It was laughable, it was ridiculous and foolish in Greek thought and thinking. But these Christians not only lived lives devoted to Christ that was evident to those around them, but they proclaimed Christ because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Is that what we want for those around us, for them to be saved? Well, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. They didn't need to attract or accommodate the culture. They didn't need to compromise. They didn't need to capitulate. They didn't need to become complacent. They didn't need to fear. They didn't need to isolate themselves from the culture. They needed to be faithful to evangelize it as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And Luke wants us to know the importance of the local church in the plan of God. You cannot have a Christ-centered life without having a church-centered life because the church is the bride of Christ. It is his body and he is the head. You cannot separate Christ from his body. As you're devoted to Christ, you should be connected to, committed to, and contributing to the local body of Christ. And this is what characterized these believers in Antioch. It is the church that is called to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And again, this is not an easy task. You will face opposition. You will be hated. There will be persecution. But remember the words of Jesus in John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so the church must be comforted and strengthened. It must be matured. It must be equipped. It must be prepared. It must be united. It must be reminded of the love and grace and promises of our Lord and the hope that we have in him. And that happens, guess where? In the context of the local church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. We need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters. We need to stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we see the day drawing near. This is the necessity of gathering together if the church is to take the gospel to the end of the earth and not compromise, we must stand strong. We must stand firm in the Lord and we must stand out for the Lord. And Luke provides the church of Antioch as a picture of that. The church at Antioch was a key church in the plan of God for the spread of the gospel. And it's no different for Grace Church. 
Grace Church is a key church in the plan of God for the spread of the gospel. And now Luke takes us back to, in our text this afternoon, takes us back to what is happening in Jerusalem as the people of God are continuing to be persecuted. But God displays his sovereignty. God displays his power through a divine miracle to demonstrate that nothing will hinder his plan. Nothing will hinder his plan for the gospel to go to the end of the earth, nor his promise to build his church. And so all glory be to God. All glory belongs to God. In these verses, Luke recounts the continued growth of the word despite persecution so that we would understand that no matter what authorities stand up against God and his people, that nothing will stop his promises to build and to bless his church. If you look at verse 1, it says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Opposition, hatred, persecution. Look down at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. We see the continued growth of the word despite persecution, despite the believers being mistreated by the king. This this is the triumphant progress of the gospel because this is God's plan and promise. But also we need to understand that God uses means and people in the process. Look down at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And again in verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. We see God's people praying and we see the spread of the word through people's proclamation of the word of God. God uses means and he uses his people in the process of building his church for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And in this passage, we will consider four truths that we need to know. Four truths that we need to know if the church is to remain strong, if the church is to stand firm in the Lord, if the church is to stand out for the Lord despite persecution. First, we need to know the cost. We need to know the cost of following Jesus, of calling him our Lord. Secondly, we need to know that God is in control. God is in control. Third, we need to know that judgment and vengeance belongs to God. And lastly, we need to know that nothing will stop God's promises to build and to bless his church. And in the end, that all glory be to God. All glory be to God. So first we'll look at verses 1 through 5. We need to know the cost. We need to know the cost. Again, now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Luke takes us back to what is happening in Jerusalem. So he shifts from the church in Antioch that was established through the proclamation to the Greeks in that in that immoral culture and some being saved and the church growing, now back to Jerusalem. And this Herod, the king, referenced in verse 1, is referring to Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson 
of Herod the Great. His uncle was Herod Antipas, who was also referred to as, in the Gospels, uh, Herod the Tetrarch. And he was the one who beheaded John the Baptist and who mocked Jesus at his trial before his crucifixion. And his grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one who ordered the execution of babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of the king of the Jews. This is the line that this Herod the king came from. And in this case, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We see in verse 1 that he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. This is physical harm and violence towards Christians, towards the church. In verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, these are the sons of Zebedee, put to death with a sword. And a lot of commentators say that means he was beheaded. And James, this is the James that was a disciple and apostle of Jesus. And so he was the first apostle to be martyred. James was also part of the inner circle of Jesus with Peter and John, those who were closest to him and who were, saw the transfiguration. They had insight to, to Jesus that the other apostles didn't. And we see in verse 3 that Herod the king then went after the apostle Peter. He's trying to get rid of two of the three that were closest to Jesus. Not only James, but now he wants to arrest Peter because he saw that it, it pleased the Jews. And we read in verse 3 that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Herod did everything he could to flatter the Jews and to please them in order to win their favor. He wanted to play the part of the Jewish king. Yet it was all motivated by selfish ambition and self-glory. And no doubt he wanted to execute Peter as well. But it was during, it says, the days of unleavened bread, that is the Passover. And this is God's providence and timing because according to Jewish custom, no executions occurred during the Passover. So Herod had to wait until after the Passover week. And in verse 5, we see that this gave an opportunity and time for the church to pray for Peter to God. Also notice in verse 4 what Herod did with Peter. He seized him. He captured him. He put him in prison and had four squads of soldiers guarding him. This is four groups of four soldiers that were on rotation. So 16 soldiers in total guarding one non-threatening fisherman, this harmless man who just went about preaching the powerful word of God. Two at a time would be chained to Peter, and two at a time would be standing guard outside the cell door to make sure that nothing happens. Because if you recall from Acts chapter 5, what happened there, where the apostles miraculously escaped from prison, and the religious leaders ended up being embarrassed. It says there in chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, it says, the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. 
But the officers who came did not find them in prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people the thing exactly they were put in prison for and told not to do. And Herod didn't want any chance of that happening again. And so Peter was under maximum security, guarded by 16 soldiers. But as we will see, no matter what the king may plan, God's plan rules. And no matter how powerful the king is and his soldiers are or may be, they are no match for the power of God. They are no match for the power of God and even the power of his people praying. Notice verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him. Prayer for Peter. This is specific prayers for Peter. Was being made. Continual prayers, specific prayers are being made for Peter. Fervently, earnest prayers, specific prayers, continual prayers for Peter by the church. Believers praying on his behalf, interceding on his behalf to God, the sovereign and powerful God who works all things after the counsel of his will and here through the means of his people praying. We need to know the cost of following Christ, that it could cost us mistreatment, it could cost us imprisonment. It could even cost us our lives. We need to understand this cost and know that it is worth it to do his will and not our own if we are to remain strong and stand firm in the Lord and stand out for the Lord despite persecution that will come against the church of God. We also see there in the first five verses, in light of this persecution, the power of prayer. But secondly, in verses 6 through 17, we need to know that God is in control. We need to know that God is in control. Verse 6 begins with, on that very night, on that very night. This is the night before Peter's execution. And what is Peter doing? In a matter of a few hours, he would be killed. Yet he was sleeping at peace with whatever his sovereign God had ordained for him. He knew that God is in complete control over his life. And in verse 7, we see that the Lord intervenes and demonstrates that he has different plans for Peter. He sends an angel a messenger to Peter to deliver him out of prison and to affirm to Peter that it was the Lord that rescued him from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were, from what all the Jewish people were expecting from verse 11. So while Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, with two soldiers in front of the door, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. So instead of being woken up by one of the guards and led to his death, 
He was awakened by a messenger of the Lord and delivered from death. The messenger tells him to get up and to get dressed and to follow him, and the chains fell off his hands. So Peter gets dressed and followed the angel of the Lord out, past the two soldiers standing guard over the prison door, and then out of the iron gate that leads into the city, which verse 10 says, open for them by itself. The word itself is from the Greek word automatos, which is automatically where we get that word. This iron gate would have required multiple men to open and to close, but here the Lord automatically opens the iron gate for them as they go out into the city, and then the angel departs from Peter. Peter's left there alone, wondering what happened, and if that was another vision from the Lord that he just saw. But verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This wasn't a vision from the Lord. This was a divine miracle from the Lord. This was one of the most extraordinary prison breaks in the history of mankind. And the soldiers had no idea what happened. Though the chains fell off, the two guards that were chained to Peter, though they walked right past the two guards standing outside the door, the only explanation for this divine miracle is the Lord. And Peter recognizes that. Then Peter makes his way to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Why that detail, as Luke will again say in verse 25, John, who was also called Mark. Because Luke is introducing us and mentioning Mark because he will accompany Barnabas and Saul at the start of their first missionary journey. And notice again in verse 12, at the house of Mary, what were they doing? Many were gathered together, and were praying. Many were gathered together and were praying for Peter. And verses 13 and 14 says, When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. It says, because of her joy. Rhoda was so overjoyed and overwhelmed with excitement that she ran back in to tell the others and didn't even open the gate for Peter. You know, when someone unexpected comes to knock on your door and you open it and you see them, perhaps a family member that you weren't expecting to visit, and you're so happy to see them that you don't open the door, but you run inside to tell the rest of the family. And then everyone comes and sees them and then lets them in. That's Rhoda. She's so overjoyed, so excited to see Peter there. She doesn't open the gate. She runs in to tell others, and then they all come and open the gate. But notice verse 15 when she shares the good news with them, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. They were not anticipating an escape. And so their prayers must have been for God's protection and strength in some other way, perhaps for a positive verdict or for a lesser punishment for Peter while also praying for Peter's faith, for his joy in the Lord in the midst of imprisonment and what he was facing. This demonstrates the feebleness of their faith, the feebleness of their faith, which is contrasted with God's power and grace. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, to believers, the church, 
Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Meaning that as we pray, we are to be watchful in it because we pray to a God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21. So we would be wise not only to ask, but to keep watch for answers that are beyond what we ask for and praise God for it and give God all the glory knowing that God is in complete control and that that is his will. Demonstrates the feebleness of their faith contrasted with God's power and grace as God's people pray and are watchful in it. Meanwhile, Peter's still outside. He's outside knocking, wondering if anyone is going to let him in. And they finally opened the door and saw him, and they were amazed. They needed to see with their own eyes to believe. And he described to them how the Lord, how the Lord had led him out of the prison. He gives glory to God. And he told them to report these things to James and the brethren. This is a different James because James was already, the James apostle was already killed. This is referring to James, the brother of Jesus, one of the pillars of the church according to Galatians 2.9, the one who was the leader and head of the Jerusalem church, the writer of the epistle of James. And verse 17 ends with Peter leaving and going to another place. He was delivered by the hand of the Lord from the hand of Herod the king, demonstrating that God is in control. God is in control. And we need to know that God is in control. We need to know that God is in control if we are to remain strong and stand firm in the Lord and stand out for the Lord despite persecution and continue to pray and depend upon God who is in control of all things, knowing that his will be done and that he can do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So we need to know the cost. We need to know that God is in control. Thirdly, if we are to remain strong and stand firm in the Lord and stand out for the Lord despite persecution, we need to know that judgment and vengeance belongs to God. Judgment and vengeance belongs to God. Verses 18 through 23 says there, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, having won over Blastus to King's Chamberlain. They were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out the voice of a God and not of a man, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. The church is not to take vengeance, but rather continue to carry on in faithfulness to Christ, because judgment and vengeance belongs to God. That is not what the church is called to do. We're called to be faithful to proclaim. It is now, the text says in verse 18, the next day, the day that Peter was supposed to die. 
But Peter's no longer in prison, and the soldiers are in a panic. Peter's gone, and they can't find him, and so Herod has all the guards executed, all 16. Then it says, Herod went to Caesarea and spent time there. Herod went down to Caesarea, which is a the most Roman of all the cities. He's also the least Jewish city. And what does it mean for Herod to leave Jerusalem and go to Caesarea? It means that he gave up on the ploy of seeking to please the Jews because of what happened. And now he finds himself with the Romans, and guess what? He did what pleased the Romans. When he was with the Jews, he did what pleased the Jews. When he was with the Romans, he did what pleased the Romans. Though he may be a king, and it may seem like he has control, he's a puppet seeking to win the favor of all people, being manipulated by it. Selfish ambition, self-glory, self-boasting. Verse 20 mentions that he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. The text doesn't clarify or explain why, but just that he was. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, Herod's personal attendant, and they were asking for peace because they depended upon the king's resources for food. Tyre and Sidon was along the coast, and so they depended upon the king's resources for food from the the country. And then in verse 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, which is a raised platform or podium, and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. The word struck is the same word used to describe the Lord's angel striking Peter's side in verse 7. One was for deliverance, and the other for death. The Lord is in control. Judgment and vengeance belongs to him. And eaten by worms, in the Greek, the root word for this phrase refers to a tapeworm, a tapeworm. And so his internal, his internal organs and intestines were infected and eaten not just by one worm, tapeworm, but eaten by worms, many worms, which would cause serious complications, excruciating abdominal pain until he died. And Luke states that this happened because Herod did not give God the glory. Because Herod did not give God the glory. So it will be also to all who do not give God the glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake... And he says it again, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? This is a strong reminder to those of us who are in Christ that all glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God. And this serves as a strong warning to those who are not in Christ of the eternal judgment and wrath that awaits them. 
And so we see that the guards were executed by Herod. Herod himself is killed, eaten by worms until he died. But Peter is alive. The church needs to know that despite persecution, that judgment and vengeance belongs to God. Also that no sin will go unpunished. No word or deed will be unaccounted for because God is holy and God is just and God is righteous. And he will not give his glory to another. But there's hope in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No sin will go unpunished. You are not righteous. There is none who is righteous. You cannot win God's favor with your self-righteousness. It is impossible. You are not perfect. You've broken the law of God. And you deserve God's righteous, just, eternal wrath and condemnation. Because no sin will go unpunished. And God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. But God, because he is merciful, because he is loving, because he is gracious and compassionate, sent his one and only son to be our servant, to be our substitute, to be our advocate, to be our mediator, to be our savior, that if we place our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God and Son of Man, turn away from our own self-righteousness, look to His perfect righteousness in faith and trust, we will be saved. You will have eternal life. You will therefore be able to give God glory. The gospel is the only way to Christ. For us, as believers, as a church of God, we are to press on. We are to press on in what we've been called to do and leave the rest to God. Not only in our proclamation of the gospel, be faithful to proclaim and leave the results to God, but even in the midst of persecution, we are to be faithful and leave the vengeance and judgment to God. Lastly, if we are to remain strong and stand firm in the Lord and stand out for the Lord, despite persecution, we need to know that nothing will stop God's promises to build and to bless his church. Nothing will stop God's promises to build and to bless his church, verses 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Verse 24, we see that despite persecution, that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. It resulted in the progressive sanctification and growth of the believers and the growth of the church. And we see this in verse 25 as well. God's people are still serving him, still pressing on, still continuing on in the work of the ministry, serving one another and working together. Local churches are being strengthened. As Barnabas and Saul fulfilled their mission, now they bring along John Mark to continue the work of the Lord. The ministry continues as the people of God are faithful 
And through the power of the word and the power of the spirit, the word will continue to increase and be multiplied. Nothing will stop God's promises to build and bless his church. At the end of Acts 11, Barnabas and Saul left the church at Antioch to bring the famine relief contribution to the church in Jerusalem, which we looked at last week. And now Barnabas and Saul return to Antioch from Jerusalem, and they bring along with them John Mark. God is continuing to work. God is positioning them and preparing them to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. Again, demonstrating that nothing will stop his plan or his promise to build his church and to bless his church. And we, as the church, we need to know that. We need to place our hope firmly on that truth that God will build his church. He has, he will keep his promises to bless his church. And from this point forward in Acts, the ministry of Peter will take a back seat and the ministry of Paul will now be the focus. So Luke takes us back to the key church in Antioch where we will see the beginning of the launch and expansion of the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. And that's how Acts chapter 12 ends. We see that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is in complete control, aware of everything that is happening. His plan, his perfect plan, is unfolding through his providence in the lives of his people, through the lives of Herod the king, through the life of Peter, through the life of his church. And persecution serves in God's sovereignty to spread the gospel rather than to silence it. As a church, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. If we know these truths, if we know the cost, if we know that judgment and vengeance belongs to God, if we know that God is faithful to keep his promises to build and bless his church. It's been said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I lay my head at night. Is that true of us? Do we know the sovereignty of God over all of our life? That, that we can go to sleep at night without fear, at peace, with hope and joy because God is in complete control. Nothing happening is a mistake. It's going right along with what he has ordained. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. As Christians, we should expect to suffer at the hands of those who are part of the world. Faithfulness to Christ will result in hostility from unbelievers, including those in positions of authority and civil authority. Though God designed government to promote and protect good and to prevent and punish evil, fallen human governments often do the opposite. And Psalm 2 reminds us that God laughs at those who oppose him as if they could successfully thwart his plans and purposes. And so no political leader, no political agenda, nor any policies will ever stop God's promise to build and to bless his church. God is in complete control. But as those called to be a witness, which is what we are called to be, as those who are called to be a witness, we are commanded to pray. Not just for ourselves and our brothers and sisters, but we are commanded to pray for the salvation of governing authorities, First Timothy 2. And to even call them to repentance. 
to let them know that they are accountable to God in how they lead and that they are not above the law of God. And furthermore, we are to continue ourselves to live godly lives in Christ Jesus and look forward in hope to his return, understanding that we will suffer for the name of Christ and that we are to trust the Lord to make things right and to bring judgment, bring to judgment the actions of wicked rulers. And we are to live in hope that one day God will establish the perfect government under the reign and rule of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to the day when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom as the perfect king who rules in perfect righteousness and justice and peace. Another thing that we should not miss from this passage is that the great weapon of the church is prayer. The great weapon of the church is prayer. When the church prays, the will of God unfolds and we see his enemies perish, even if it does not exempt the church from suffering and martyrdom. Luke demonstrates the triumphant progress of the gospel by the fervent prayers of the church to God. Because God's power is always greater than the powers of men and of Satan, we must be people who pray because we pray to a God who is all-powerful. Through prayer, the helpless find strength. Through prayer, the helpless find strength. Through prayer, God's servants find peace in the midst of trial. Peter's sound asleep in the prison cell at peace because he knows his Lord is good. He knows that his Lord is in control. He knows that if he dies, he's going to go be with the Lord. Prayer helps the helpless find strength in the Lord. First Peter 5, 6. This is Peter writing, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Through prayer, the helpless find strength. Through prayer, God's purposes are accomplished even beyond what we may ask or think. And we saw that in verse 11. The church is praying continually, specifically, earnestly, and fervently for Peter to God. Those were earnest prayers. But God answered beyond, abundantly beyond what they asked or thought. Through prayer, God answers us despite our lack of faith. If God answers our prayers, even when our faith is weak, how much more if we would trust in him and pray with confidence and with great faith. Let us, therefore, when we pray, approach the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Why? Because not all believers will be gifted with the ability to preach. But all believers are gifted with the gift of prayer. We can all pray. We've been gifted with the gift of prayer. Acts 6, devote yourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, a word to church leaders. Again, the order says something. Devote yourselves to prayer first. 
and to the ministry of the word. And in verse 5, we saw, but prayer. And verse 24, but the word of the Lord. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of God at work in and through our lives as we pray, as we proclaim the word of God. The gospel will spread. People will be saved. It is prayer and the word of God that will inform and instruct and comfort and encourage and give hope and joy to the church in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. That is how we will stand strong. That's how we will stand firm. And not only stand firm, but stand out for the Lord in how we live godly lives in Christ Jesus as we face persecution, as we continue to proclaim the gospel that saves. And so it is all God. Prayer in the word, ministry of the Holy Spirit, God's grace given to us. It is all of God, and so all glory be to God. All glory belongs to God. James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary that one way to view Peter's rescue is a picture of the way in which Jesus spiritually rescues all those who are his. I'll close with his this quote. Boyce wrote, quote, Peter's case was hopeless, humanly speaking. He was in prison, surrounded by guards. He was asleep. He was condemned to die. His case pictures us in our sin. We are chained by sin and are unable to escape. We are even asleep in sin, insensitive to it, until God sends his Holy Spirit to break our shackles and free us. This is a good picture of what God does with us in salvation. He sends his light to illuminate the spiritual darkness of our lives and strikes off the shackles of sin so that we might be set free to follow Jesus. And then the song, Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's light, night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? All glory be to God. And in light of God's mercy and grace in saving each one of us and calling us into his body, the church, He's also given us the responsibility and the privilege and the joy to go now and to proclaim to the end of the earth the saving message of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the word and the power of the spirit. And so may we be people who pray and people who proclaim truth, knowing that we need that if we are to stand strong, stand firm, and stand out despite persecution and for God to continue to do his work in and through our lives and through his church to spread the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us and teaching us of the many different ways that you work throughout history, through different means, through different people, and even through this time in Peter's life, through this divine miracle, to deliver him from death, that he may continue on in the ministry of reclaiming your word, Father, we want to be a people who know and believe what your word declares and proclaims because your word is truth, it is trustworthy, it is sufficient for all of our lives and for all of godliness. So thank you for your spirit that illumines our minds, your spirit that renews our minds, your spirit that sanctifies us to know your truth and to believe your truth. Father, would you impress these truths deep upon our hearts. 
that we would know that in the midst of persecution and trial and suffering for the name of Christ, that you are in total control. That we know the cost of following your son is not an easy one, but it's the same road that your son walked. To know that we are just to be faithful, to proclaim and obey, and not to take vengeance and to retaliate. Because that is for you. And that we can firmly know your promise to build the church and to bless your church. Father, help us be comforted by these truths and encourage us in these truths during this week and for the weeks to come. We thank you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.